This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Recall This Book, Summer 2023. I'm delighted that we finally get to have a conversation with my co-producer and co-host and friend, John Plotz, about his about-to-be-released book, Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea, My Reading, which is uh, coming out uh, with Oxford University Press. John, when's the release date? Uh, August 25th. August 25th. Okay. And also, welcome, John. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, So John is a, a professor at Brandeis University. He's the Barbara Mandel Professor of the Humanities in the English Department. Is that the correct title, John? Yeah, so people always think it's Barbara Mandrell, which is, you know, which would be much more glamorous. Which would be pretty glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Um, and he's the author of uh, many different things, including several books, Portable Property, Victorian Culture on the Move, The Crowd, British Literature and Public Politics, uh, Semi-Detached, The Aesthetics of Virtual Experience Since Dickens, um, also a children's book, Time and the Tapestry, a William Morris adventure. Uh, which I think you got, you sold while sitting next to someone on a plane, which I was super jealous about and continue to be, um, as well as many other exciting um, exciting publications within academia and various kinds of public spheres. So, John, tell us a little bit about the about the book and, uh, and also about how you came to talk to Le Guin. Okay, cool. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much. It's so exciting and weird to be on this side of the microphone with you. Um, I love it. Um, mm-hmm. I'll also say I've never had a book that had actual gold on its cover the way you have. So, um, <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of things still still to aim for. Um, yeah. So, this book is a total labor of love. Um, I was invited to join this series called My Reading, which has wonderful books, for example, by Rosemary Bodenheimer about Beckett. There's a fantastic book about Dickens. And they basically just said, pick a book that changed your life. And, you know, 
you won't be shocked to know that I originally thought about Hannah Arendt and I thought about <laughs> Willa Cather too, but I really, Le Guin kept with me for reasons that I try to talk about in the book because of the kind of um, dual aspect reality that she creates. That is that she's telling stories for adults and for children as well. Um, I learned in my interview with her that the Earthsea books were actually commissioned literally as the first young adult fantasy series ever. And that sort of rings true to me in that way that young adult can, um, you know, kind of tip two different registers at once. So what I wanted mm -hmm. to get at with the Earthsea books, and for those of you who haven't read them, I hope you will read them because they're wonderful, even if you're listening to this as an adult, um, or you'll read them to your kids. But if you have read them, you'll know that they're kind of dragon based adventure stories. They're about magicians who learn a language that if you can channel it enables you to change reality by way of words. Um, and they are quest adventures that began quite simply and also in kind of, as Le Guin herself says, an old sexist Western European fantasy tradition in which, you know, the boys go on adventures and the girls hope for them to come home. And then they evolve, um, even in the first trilogy, but especially in the second trilogy, they evolve into something much more uh, complex and something that reflects Le Guin's own politics, I think, which are progressive anarchist um, not really utopian, I would say, but, you know, mm. sort of emancipationist and anarchist and very feminist. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so what I what I say in the book is that I loved the first series and I still love it, but I never would have written this book if it weren't for the second set of books or C books that Le Guin wrote. So she wrote the first set when she was relatively young in her 30s and 40s. She went back in her 60s and wrote a second series and didn't undo the first series, but added a whole new layer to our understanding of this entire world of Earthsea. So mm -hmm. I basically tried to write a book about what it is to look at an author being a rereader, to look at them going back and to return to a naive experience they had younger mm -hmm. and have a sort of second, not ironic, but more seasoned and, uh, um, you know, I don't know, comprehensive vision mm -hmm. of the world. So that's mm -hmm. that's 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 the argument for the kind of the two sidedness of Le Guin herself and the two sidedness of what it's like to read the books. Mm -hmm. One thing I really love about the book, uh, about your book, John, is the way in which you have this kind of mirroring quality between, you know, what it's like for her to revisit writing them, but then also what it's like to be a child reading them or a, or a young, very young adult. And then um and then what it's like to be a middle-aged person uh, reading them, um, and and how that uh, that kind of yeah, I I agree with you that irony is in the neighborhood of what it is. It's it's there's a, there's some other word for it. Um, the current certain kind of bemusement that um, that that produces uh, both as it seems to produce for. For Le Guin as a writer and and for you and and me too as a reader so I thought you captured that really uh poignantly so yeah. nice thank, thank yeah. you yeah I mean I I I like your point about that doubleness and uh you know Schiller has this essay called the naive and the sentimental in poetry where he mm. uses the word sentimental which I don't think we use in quite that sense anymore to capture that notion of going back with a right. with a seasoned eye where you see you see what it was like to believe originally 
It would be like yeah. the difference between how Don Quixote believes in the giants in the world when Sancho Panza, all he believes in is that Quixote believes in them. Like you're looking at right. looking at a simpler form of belief. And so I definitely yeah, yeah. see Le Guin going back that way. But the thing it's I'll so, say about yeah. Le Guin that's really great, and she has a she has a, a wonderful essay on the craft of writing fantasy called From Elfland to Poughkeepsie. Um, mm. And she said in it, she says, the thing about fantasy novels is that they completely know they're made up and they never tire of reminding you how invented. Yeah. And, and I think that's a crucial point about fantasy. And so that's to the extent that I have an argument in the book. It's actually an argument against uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who says mm. that world making depends on completely fooling the reader, like deluding them into living in that world. And right. my idea with Le Guin is much more, well, I I call it semi-detachment. I mean, I, I sort of wrote other things about this uh, in mm -hmm. the past, but I, I, my idea is that it's two things at once. Like she wants you there with, you know, the heroes and their goats and their dragons and all that. Mm -hmm. But she also wants you to remember, you know, this is magic. This is, this is right. make-believe and, right. Um, right. you know, living with <laughs> both those things. Yeah. It reminds me a little, what you're saying about fantasy reminds me a little about things like miniatures or things that are made at a bigger scale, right? That, yeah. Like, you know, like when you have like a miniature dollhouse furniture or like a, a, a pocket watch that's tiny, but it really winds up. The pleasure comes from the fact that it's so well done, but you always know that, yeah. it's, you know, kind of, building a tiny little world yeah yeah so there, there's the the sort of it depends on the consciousness of its artificiality even as it's trying to kind of get you to momentarily forget yeah. about that yeah yeah i think that's a great point point. and so i try to talk a little bit in the book about how this sort of belief relates to religious belief and i think there's a very mm -hmm, i mean good. you know Le Guin herself talks about herself as a secularist or secular humanist and and that mm -hmm. reads true to me but i think mm -hmm. she's not trying to throw religion under the bus she wants you to understand the impulse to you know mm -hmm. like want to hold on to things that you know you can't prove to be true but you nonetheless want them to be true and you know writing fantasy is a good way of thinking about what you know where that impulse comes from and how we could sustain it um right. you know like what what Hoitzinger calls like uh, the game world you know like we could have mm -hmm. this kind of enchanted game world and her problem with religion which is also my problem with religion is just like the moment that it wants you to forget the gaminess of it you know to the extent that it's right you know, well and which, it's a yeah. I mean it's a to the extent that it has it's authoritarian religion yes she has a problem yeah yeah that. yeah 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 that's true and, but Right. But that kind of goes with the, one of the things I like about Le Guin as a left as a leftist thinker. And one of the reasons she was always getting into arguments with the other leftist science fiction thinkers of the 1970s is that Le Guin is an anarchist. Like she has yeah. as she has as much skepticism. She has skepticism about all kinds of mobilization, um, all kinds of kind of right. corralling authority structures. So right. uh, when I was listening to the interview yeah. I did with her, I was really struck by how much she attacks corporations. And mm -hmm. this is a very 2023 thing to say, uh, looking back on an interview from 2015. But like nowadays, I don't actually think about corporations as the main thing I'm scared of when I think about like right wing power structures in America. Oh. 
And I and will. The, I do, but <laughs> no, you do. Okay, well, we can talk about <laughs> yeah. that. That's interesting, but yeah. Um, um, well, yeah. Well, you're on the Gwyn side then, I guess, because she's you know yeah. she's really quick to identify. It's not just organized religion that's a problem, but it's like all sorts of governmental structures, including state socialism, right. and also you know the corporate structures that capitalism creates. Um, right, and I mean even organized anarchism, if you can, or the that sort of contradictory phenomenon, right? Like in the dispossessed. And that's maybe also why, you know, that's why you say she's not a utopian too, right? All of her worlds are kind of complicated and and there's, you know, plenty of room for sort of unpleasantness, uh, even in sort of imagined political systems yeah. that she's sort of approving of. Yeah, 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 completely. And I think, you know, so you're touching on the fact, like, I think it's useful to think about Le Guin as writing both fantasy and science fiction. Sometimes they mix, but usually they're somewhat separate. And you're talking about like, there's these incredible science fiction novels she wrote just while she was writing the first Earthsea book. So there's The Left Hand of Darkness, The Lathe of Heaven and The Dispossessed, each of which is sort of exploring a different aspect of, you know, what would happen if certain things about our world got fixed. But exactly what you're saying, nonetheless, you're still in a muddle, like just be, like in yeah. The Left Hand of Darkness, gender is completely different from the rigidly right. binary, you know, male, female feminine mystique world that Le Guin was writing in in the 1970s. And, you know, it's so different that like our gender terms don't even really apply to what people yeah. are like on this world. Nonetheless, it's not as if the world is super awesome and everybody has everything figured out. It just pushes a different set of problems to the fore. Right, right, right. So tell us about how you reached out to her and how that came to be. Yeah, that sounds great. So I sent her a copy of that children's book that I wrote about William Morris, and we discovered a shared love of William Morris. And she was very nice to me and invited me to come visit with her mm. um, in Oregon. And so I, you know, asked if it was okay if I brought a tape recorder with me for the conversation. She was extremely nice about that. Um, if there are true Le Guin fans listening, you will know that there's, I think, at least two complete books of conversations with Ursula. So people mm. really, um, you know, she's, she's generous. She's, she's, proven her generosity in so many different ways in print, but also in terms of human contact. She clearly, you know, goes to, she used to go to science fiction conventions. She went to fantasy conventions. She met people who mm -hmm. were fans or, you know, would be, you know, would be friends and was always very generous. So anyway, mine is just probably typical in that way. But I, you know, it was about three years before she died. She was you know, in a ruminative frame. She didn't seem nostalgic to me. I wouldn't say she was, um, you know, right. Think talking about herself in the past tense, but she was looking back at the arc of her own career and thinking about how mm -hmm. her writing, you know, compared to 19th century writing. And anyway, mm -hmm. so, so it was a, it was a lovely conversation. And I think maybe the first clip we're going to hear, she was talking about how names work in the Earthsea books and how she basically came to write them. So I was asking her both about maps, because um, there's a very important map of, of the Earthsea uh, islands mm -hmm. and also about the names of places. Um, so should I just play the play the tape? Please do. Yes. Um, when, when did the map come for you of the Earthsea map? Did you draw it before or? I wrote a couple of short stories that took place on islands that had wizards. And uh, then I was asked by a publisher to write, we didn't even have the word young adult then, to write a fantasy for older children. Yeah. And, and I was 
that, oh, you, no, I, I can't yeah. do that. I've never written for children. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. But, you know, I went home and thought about it and uh, got the idea of how does a wizard become a wizard? Yeah. Well, he goes to wizard school? Yeah. Well, wouldn't that be fun, you know? Yeah. So there I went. And then I thought, okay, where... Oh, it's somewhere, it's those islands that those other stories are. Mm. But I need to know more about them. So I, I did literally at that point sit down and draw a big map with lots of islands about which I knew nothing at that point. Uh, but I named them happily. Oh. And then the, all through, through the rest of the six books, I could just travel around and find out what they were like. Yeah, yeah. They're wonderful names. They're just did all the names were there at the first. Then I, names come first with me. Oh. I can't write about a character if he or she doesn't have a name. Yeah, the right name. Yeah. And yeah, so I had to name all the items. Yeah, right, right away. Mm. Isn't yeah. that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I I have no, no understanding what the process there is. No, wait a second. I just occurred to me. So characters in the Earthsea books have use names and then they have mm -hmm. true names. Mm -hmm. Are the islands names true names? They're true, true names. names. They're true names. Yeah. So you can do magic with them because oh, yeah. they're the... Yes. Mm, right. Yeah. yeah. Right. But it doesn't give you power over an island to know its true islands name. Islands are pretty the big things. They're big. <laughs> I see. Okay, they have power. Yeah. Um, yes, but a big wizard could, could probably do something awful or wonderful temporarily to yes. an island by using his name. Yeah. Yes. Wow, that's great. So I love the, I mean, I'll just say that one of the things that is most, one of the central ideas of the Earthsea world that I find so cool and compelling is this whole idea of um, of magic as a form of linguistics, of like trying to find out that, I mean, you know, all of this, not all of it, but a large part of the study of it is about finding things, things, true names as well as the names being this um, this important part of the kind of rite of passage of a, of a person. Um, you get your name. Turns, yeah, you get yeah. your name. And it turns out of, a, of dragons also. Um, yeah. And I just think that's such a brilliant little kind of mechanism at the heart of the world there. Um, yeah, there's the tower of the namer, like and on Roke, there are these various different archmage mages who have the power. And one of them is the namer who actually comes from outside of their world. He comes from the the not the Hardic lands, but the Kargish lands. So mm -hmm. there is this sense, right, that that names and right linguistics can do something for you. We, you know, when yeah. has admits having like a soft spot for like you know, science and the people who collect knowledge, like she, she likes lore masters, but I, I get it. You're talking about something deeper too. Cause you're talking about the way yeah. the world is literally made up out of words. And that is, you know, that's a, that's a point about a fantasy novel. Like she, there's something. And that there's different oh. kinds of words. Yeah. That there's this yeah. sort of registers that are more, um, more superficial or more kind of common yeah. Uh, for regular use and then these more kind of intimate intensely powerful and i guess part of what it is is and you know just to say for many of our listeners know but um that Le Guin is the daughter of a very famous um kind of founding or let's say within u.s anthropology sort of second generation um anthropologist namely alfred Krober, 
And um, her books are deeply anthropological. I would consider her an anthropologist. I think she would she would agree. Um, and an imaginary anthropologist. An imaginary, right? A speculative anthropologist. Speculative anthropologist. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So are we and, all? And yeah. um, I mean, one of the things I love about the name, the way that names work in the world, and this is what Marcel Mauss would call a total social fact, is that it, you know, it has this these political uses. It has ritual uses. There's mm. also a whole etiquette around who gets, to, you know, when do you use someone's name or when do you, how do you indicate that you know someone's true name but you're not going to use it? Yeah. Um, and you know the all the ways in which this kind of like internal cultural logic of yeah. this world or or actually physical and cultural logic um expresses itself in so many different forms so one thing i wanted to ask you and I, that i love about this quote is um it comes up throughout throughout the different parts of the conversation of is is her interest in thinking about herself as a certain kind of writer different from other kinds of writers later she talks about how she's not very interested in or not very good at plot that the plot kind of happens and and yeah. her whole stance in this is about her sort of like well i needed to know about it so i wrote about it as though yeah that wasn't you know her creating it yeah yeah or, yeah or yeah. the creation is a more complicated process than than you might have been yeah yeah say. um and i wanted to know how did her thoughtfulness about herself as a writer influence your thinking about yourself as a reader in the book oh i see yeah no that's a great point okay so that's another one where i would go back to the notion of like the child reader and the adult reader of these books so i would say mm -hmm. as a child and i talk about this a little bit in the book i just was away you know like they worked on me so mm -hmm. you know i had that same experience that i think a lot of people nowadays have with harry potter but you know i had it with lloyd alexander too with mm, the, the taron yes. wanderer books <laughs> we've talked about that before but like those books where you just believe in the world and so what i noticed was more like her being a magician successfully casting a spell and I was there and mm -hmm. but now you're but you're talking about going back and and I would say not just going back to write this book but when I went and read the second set of 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 uh, Earthsea books so those are called um Tahanu Tales from Earthsea and the Other Wind and mm -hmm. I when I read those all you know there was a kind of revolution in my thinking like it did make me realize oh you know, I can feel Le Guin, the person here, working through problems of like, what, mm -hmm. you know, what does it mean? You know, what does it mean for a problem that exists in the real world also to exist in the fantasy world? It's not about escape. It's about rotating your vision of the world into this other space. And then ultimately, you still have to come back to the world because the world is the world. We live in it. <laughs> but right. you can maybe come back with that account in your mind. Right, right. But yeah, there's more of a, a sort of lack of ambition or or, or a, a skepticism about ambition in the later things that maybe is related to this question yeah. about trauma. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I that also is related to the thing that I think is also there from the beginning, but she says more about it in her later books and she talks about it more in her science fiction too, which is she 
she is skeptical of activity. Like she's skeptical right. of accomplishment, of getting stuff done, which, right. you know, for me, and this is one of the moments I get a little biographical in the book is like, you know, as a child of the seventies, you're really brought up to think that you're supposed to go out and do something, make something of yourself. And mm -hmm. a lot of what Le Guin shows and that in the example of Wizard of Sea, where like the very first actions are actions that he takes that he has to spend the rest of the book trying to undo. And you can mm -hmm, never, right. undo, and you can't actually undo them. All you can do is find some kind of compensatory action. But if right. you had never done them in the first place, then you know they yes you wouldn't have yes. loosed something into the world. And you actually connect that to thinking about um, about teaching and about like what the relationship of uh, teaching is to action in the in the world towards totally. the end of your book. Yeah, I do, and you know I. I, you know, I mean, all of us in the academy nowadays, especially at a great place like Brandeis, where there is space to have these discussions, understand mm -hmm. that this issue of social justice is like so crucial as a question of like what the classroom is for. And mm -hmm. I push back somewhat, though, mm -hmm. you know, I don't really wade into the polemics, but I push back against the idea that we as teachers are supposed to be like showing our students what the right is or how to do good in the world that I, mm -hmm. that I think of the classroom more as a space for them to figure out what their relationship is to the actions they want to accomplish. In other words, I don't mm -hmm. want to, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to exhort them. I want mm -hmm. it to be a space where if they want to exhort themselves, they can, but I want them to mm -hmm. understand the grounds of exhortation, basically. So, so you're a social inactivist. I'm a social inactivist. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I mean, um, yeah, which, which, which makes it easier to sit uh, to sit at home, I guess. No, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes inaction is really hard because sometimes you feel like you absolutely know what the right thing to say to someone is that yeah. will push them down a particular road. And then, you know, you have to tell your, you have to stop yourself from saying it. Um, yeah. so inaction can be really tiring in fact, but yes, um, yes. Yeah. I don't know, Elizabeth, um, if you had this experience of, of hanging out with older professors. So for me, it was my beloved older colleague, Michael Gilmore, who yeah. died tragically young, but he, he and I would sit in dissertation defenses or chapter discussions. And I would yammer on about the 15 things I thought someone should do. And mm -hmm. Timo would say one sentence, and it was just a sentence of noticing something that they had already done. Mm -hmm. That would be it. And then, you know, the light would go on. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not in action exactly, but it, you know, it's, um, it was like he was registering what was working for them. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Great. Um, all right. Well, let's let's uh, let's move to the next clip.
Yeah, totally. So this is a clip about, um, you know, I mentioned those three science fiction novels that she was writing at the same time as the first Earth Tea book. So I think this is her sort of discussing how she thinks about science fiction and fantasy in relationship to each other. And she's talking about the the gender, the sort of gender experimental quality of Left Hand of Darkness, which is, I think, really a novel for 2023. Okay, here, here she goes. So I wrote Earthsea and Left Hand of Darkness. Yeah. And those are clearly, and from then on, I kind of was falling two pages. Yeah. And so Dispossessed belongs with Left Hand of Darkness then? Oh, it's science fiction. Yeah, science fiction. Yeah. 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 Social science fiction. Yeah. And the Lathe of Heaven, I guess, is science Absolutely fiction. Absolutely science fiction. Yeah. yeah. Though it's very inward as well. I mean, it has... Well, that's I began to be able yeah. to use science fiction. Mm. Well, in Left-Handed Darkness, I've told, yeah. I was using science fiction to solve, to not to solve, but to come at a, a problem that was, that I realized was very deep in me and everybody else. Yeah. Is what, what is gender? Yeah. What gender am I? You know, something, I have a question, you know, we just hadn't been asking. Yeah. And look at look at all the answers that are coming out now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We have really deconstructed it. Uh, I, I agree. I just think, yeah. Well, you, at one point, I think at that moment, when Left Hand of Darkness came out, you, you described feminism as waking up from a very long nap at that moment. <laughs> and I guess it's really woken up now. But, uh... Yeah, and a lot of people trying to put us back to sleep, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Do you think, um, so, so that I, you know, that's so wonderful to think about Left Hand of Darkness in terms of the deconstructions of gender that we have now in, in 2015. We really didn't even have the word gender. As opposed to sex, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was, yeah. you know, so what sex are you? Yeah. 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 So in, in, in some respects, we really have come along. Yeah. Yeah. And in a good direction. I, yeah. I think. Yeah. So at another point, I think also when you were talking about Left Hand of Darkness, you said that for a long, for long times you would forget what gender your characters were. Does that, does that, fit, along, does that fit with that idea or was that a different idea? In writing Left Hand. Yeah. Well, I was trying to get inside the Gathenian body and viewpoint in which gender happens once a month. Yeah. And is is, is an event. You know? Yeah. And then you just go back to being human. Yeah. And I, I was trying to think that way. Yeah. I don't know whether I succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> if I said I did, I may have just been boasting. That phrase, gender as event is really evocative, I think, for Left Hand of Darkness, that notion that, you know, just, mm -hmm. you know, to do gender, which is almost like a Judith Butler idea of like performing gender. In Left Hand of Darkness, you don't actually know which gender you're going to end up being in a given mo the mm. moment that you get sexualized or genderized in Left Hand of Darkness depends on who you're around. So right. if you're, you know, and so, so it really is eventual in that sense um like it's just a thing that happens and mm -hmm. um you know it's a basically it's literally in the switch sense it's like a turn on or a turn off you know mm -hmm. what is what, what turns you on and in which direction are you turned on but i do think Le Guin thinks of that beyond that too like i think mm. she thinks of things and this probably relates to your anthropological point which is that she thinks of people relationally and they bring out mm -hmm. different aspects of one right. another and right. and you see that 
another part of the of the kind of revolutionary dimension of that book and in its sort of thinking around gender, I think is, um, and I'm not a queer theorist or or expert in any of these matters, but it 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 puts some daylight in between gender and sexuality in a yes. way in which people weren't really thinking about, yes. right? Because it's not I, just that you so you you don't really have sexual desire unless I mean it's almost like being in heat, right? There's a sort of monthly cycle in which people become sexualized and they yes. kind of yes. grow genitalia of one sort or another, right? Yes. And um and they are like super horny during yeah. that period, but they don't necessarily only seek out. It, it's sort of like there's one factor, which is what what you yeah. you know what kit you get assigned that month. Yeah. And then there's another factor, which is like who do you end up being attracted to at that point, and who, which could be kind of happenstance, like, or it could be, you know, yeah. a lot of other things. And then there's certain things that can make you kind of get fixed. Right. There's certain moments where you become more yeah. um, like stabilized in a certain gender. Yeah. 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 Maybe because, or stabilized in a certain sexuality. But there's no there's no prior script for how that's going to go. And totally. It's really amazing. Yeah, I agree. Um, and, and I think that there's a I mean, first of all, that really gets at something that is there in the dispossessed and the lathe of heaven as well, which is that there's a commitment to fundamental openness in Le Guin, like things might mm -hmm. go another way. So, you know, mm -hmm. one of the quotes I'm obsessed with, in fact, when I redid the manuscript for the book, I realized I'd actually quoted her six times in the manuscript <laughs> saying this, but I ended up saying it only once, but it's, it's really important. <laughs> Um, which is that um, we live in capitalism, its power seems immutable, mm -hmm. so did the divine right of kings. So in other words, there's all sorts of things that seem like they have to be the way they are. And gender, as it was expressed in the 1970s, you know, you didn't, yes, there was definitely, you know, there were trans people then, but then mm -hmm. that it would be a common conversation to think about being non-binary or to think about being a trans man or a trans woman or a cis man or a cis woman, like those categories mm -hmm. didn't seem to register. But for Le Guin, what she always wants to say is, well, like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, it, it could be. And the Lake yeah. of Heaven is amazing that way because, you know, as I think you sort of alluded to, the way the Lake of Heaven works is this guy has the power to dream the world different. And when he wakes up, whatever he dreamed has become reality. That's like a, a reflection on what it is to be a fantasy writer, you know, obviously. Right. You can just, right. But it's also, I think, a deeper point for Le Guin, which is this fundamental human thing, which is we have this imaginative capacity to see right. ourselves like, are we the antithesis of other animals or are we one with the other animals? Well, before Darwin, we were the antithesis of other animals. And after Darwin, we're like, oh, wait, we are all animals. And those right. things are both true. But the right. reality changes around being able to recognize that peacocks and baboons and humans are kind of, you know, working right. with the same right. problems with a different yeah, set of yeah. tools. Yeah. Should we listen to that final Le Guin cl clip? Yeah, go for it. Did you have a soft spot in your writing for scholars and scientists? Oh, yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. <laughs> I, I grew yeah. up amongst them. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I just I love science as a, as a human undertaking, mm -hmm. just as much as I love art. I just I there is science rightly done is so beautiful. You know, uh, I can't understand math. Mm. I know it's probably the most beautiful, but 
Yeah, my wife, my wife teaches math, so I have that experience a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I believe yeah. what they say, but yes. I can't see it. I, I watch her eyes light up, but I'm not sure why they're lighting up. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for telling me that. Yeah. Sometimes it makes, but but geology, for instance, it's just you know, my lord, it's just it's all poetry. Uh, it's, it's it's amazing, and. I lived through that great revolution in geology where we discovered yeah. about plate tectonics, yeah. and that was yeah. so exciting to watch it happening. Yeah. And the, the, the new article would come out. Says, oh my God, look at it. Oh my God, it's right under Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. A new map of uh, under our feet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess one way I was thinking about it is I feel like there's been waves in progressive thinking in which science or even scholarship in the academy in general can look like the enemy, you know, because well, it's the technology, the exploiters well, of Daniel Jones. Yeah, yeah. When, and the fact is, the academy is largely a wholly owned subsidiary of various corporations yeah. now, and so is science. Yeah. And so they do become the enemy. Yeah. If, if the corporation is the enemy, yeah. I'm afraid to me, it, Pretty much is at this point. Yeah. But you know, you're you, you can so easily imagine in your earthy that the wizard school could become, you know, a site of evil, but it never yeah. really feels that way. It feels it, always, it was mm. you know, it it was definitely I mean, how come no women? How come no women? Yeah. Right. And how come no sex yeah. for the men? Yeah. What's what's wrong? I mean yeah. that's that's something has gone wrong here. Yeah. Um it ain't natural. Yeah, yeah. But you're gentle on them, aren't you? I mean, I'm not saying you let them off easy, but you do. I was thinking that, you know, rereading the Ursi books in light of the later Ursi books, I was thinking that about what well, people these... make mistakes. Yeah. For heaven's sake. Yeah. You can't get my age without realizing that people yeah. make mistakes and yeah. blaming them for it gets. What good does that do? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the the question of like science and the accumulation of knowledge and uh, mm -hmm. the the way in which knowledge gets instrumentalized and becomes a wholly owned subsidiary. And Elizabeth, you and I are like recording this the week that Oppenheimer came out. So mm -hmm. forget being a corporate sellout. You know, you can also think about science and technology as going, you know, all the way down the road of giving us the tools to do the worst things that we could do to one another. Right, right, um, right. Yeah. I, I think her answers have both of that in it. I mean, I, I love, I love you're, you're sort of trying to draw her and she's refusing to be drawn, which I kind of yeah. enjoy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know, the, the, so the, the school on, on Roke is a great sort of, you know, it's sort of an analogy for the university in that, in that Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it knows some real things and some important and good things, but it but it not only doesn't know everything, there's kinds of knowledge and kinds of um, magic that it not only doesn't know, but it refuses to know and, and denigrates, right? So there's Yeah, so there's this way. phrase, weak as women's magic, wicked as women's magic, which you hear like a mantra throughout the books. And then in the second trilogy, you begin to understand, yeah, the, the kind of misogynist origins of that. And the the falsity of the claim as well right 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 yeah. yeah and also the you know there's a whole kind of um you know uh i think she would describe as sort of masculinist like 
getting the stick. I mean, it's a wizard staff you get on, on rope for goodness sake. Right. And, uh, you know, all of this kind of like, um, prestige, there's an economy of prestige that's related to it, even as there's like extremely wide, you know, the yeah. patterner in particular, Remerly, I think is in one generation, yeah. um, you know, are these marvelous wizards who are deeply humane and, and, you know, full of, full of uh, love and generosity, but the kind of system itself has, has these blind spots and, and hubrises and so on. So, yeah. Um, this yeah but so the other thing that i that i loved in that quote and i in that passage and i saw you laughing elizabeth at the same time i was laughing is her description of plague tectonics i thought was so fabulous because that to me is gets at the point about the imaginative art of science which is like it's beneath oregon you know that notion yeah. literally the ground is shifting beneath our feet because of what geology has discovered and that i think you know that i what i think Guin was saying there is that that's where you know the so-called separateness of creative arts and sciences you, you realize the the parallel tracks they're right. running because both of them are not claiming to make up something new they're claiming to show you something that's already always there you just hadn't been thinking about it the right way yeah i've had to write a couple of short things about dragons recently and and especially dragons and the gwyn and mm. you know why i'm getting a dragon tattoo that kind of thing and I, the dragon <laughs> side of things on in Le Guin is really interesting because she needs dragons to represent something that is like kind of available inside human culture. Like it's our own wildness. It's our taste for fantasy. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's something in, in the second set of Le Guin of the Ursi books, she actually goes to show, I won't kind of spoil yeah, them. I was going to say she, spoiler alert. I won't spoil. I won't spoil. But I, but I, she basically, she shows you moments in which there's an image in which a dragon looks with human eyes and then you turn over the image and it's a human looking with dragon eyes. So in other words, she wants you to understand there's a kind of interwovenness that you were, what you were just talking about, the things we think of as farthest away from us actually you know, the thought patterns we have to understand them are the same thought patterns we have to understand what's familiar. Mm -hmm. But so there's that. But on the other hand, dragons are still different. I mean, they're still mm -hmm. like octopuses. You know, they are wild <laughs> and other. And mm -hmm. um, they, you know, they represent the possibility of true alienness in the world. Like we right. have to remember that there are things beyond our own ken. I guess that's it. It's, yeah. it's the notion is yeah. there's nothing that is truly alien to us because we share this universe and this world together. And yet, even though it's not alien to us, it can still be beyond our comprehension for now. Right. And right. you have to think both those things. Yeah. And it, and it, you know, it's this sort of sense of like holding things that are contradictory, contradictory things can also both be true. Yeah. Many I, of them. And yeah. in fact, all of them are always there, right? And that yeah. that's sort of the way the stories, you know, the the way she builds builds up the stories. Yeah, um, and 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 can I just say, like, that's another thing about. I mean, I really admire uh, Elizabeth, as you know, these people who who just don't die, who have a very long career. Like, so Le Guin had a sixty yes. year writing career, but you could have a sixty year writing career and you know remain in one rut. And that is right. really not true of Le Guin. So she translated yeah. the Tao Te Ching. She translated Angelica Gorodischer, who is this wonderful Argentinian fantasy novelist I never would have known about if it hadn't been for Le Guin translating her. She mm. wrote a lot of poetry. She, who, that, you know, she continued to 
diversify the channels of investigation so that when, you know, if she claims that she discerns a common thread, it's not because she's only looking at the sort of thing that she already likes, which is what I worry about myself all the time. I worry that I'm, mm. you know, that I'm, I'm basically cherry picking my own examples by staying within one space. Mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. it's really to McGuinn's credit. Yeah. That yeah. she really doesn't do that. She mm-hmm. puts her, she sets herself very hard tasks and then mm-hmm. you know, she tries to figure out where the resonances are. Yeah, yeah. So maybe this is a moment where we set a uh, shift to our recallable, recallable Ursula's. Um, sounds great. Yeah. And um, normally we do the the you know are polite and have the the other person go first, but I'm actually going to go first because it's yes. so deeply connected to the plate tectonics conversation. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Because the um, the you know bit of her work that I uh, want to um, enthuse about and tell people to to run, don't walk to read is a story that's in Tales of Earthsea, um, one of these second um, second uh, round of, of Earthsea books and called The Bones of the Earth, which is, you know, I hadn't really thought about it this way until I heard her talking, but it is basically the artistic rendition of plate tectonic theory, right? So it's about, um, it's about the, uh, it's told from the perspective of a, of a wizard on Gaunt, which is a kind of, you know, rocky island that has a Gauntish magic, which is rocky. And, you know, those of John, you'll know, and other people maybe that like, I'm totally obsessed with rocks and and their kind of unknowability as well as the ways in which we attempt to know them through things like geology and and plate tectonics and and um uh so so the the wizard and his student are faced with a faced with an earthquake and and trying to kind of mobilize this um uh, discredited or marginalized in fact also female knowledge that's kind of rooted in the rocks because because the wizard's um teacher was a woman which is really revealed later on but i mean it was just a you know what an example of thinking about like i'm going to take tectonic theory and i'm going to sort of consider it philosophically as a what kinds of ritual would be um associated with it um, and also, you know, the other thing about that story that I just adore, and there are moments of it throughout Le Guin, but is just the relationship between these two wizards is so funny and poignant and sweet and 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 kind of, you know, the 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 older wizard is is kind of irritable. He he thinks of himself as irritable and he is irritable, and there's a there's a kind of there's one part where he says, um, He's trying to find out an old, an old uh, uh, word. It's been taking him weeks. A, a, a true name, and 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 his assistant, who's a young man at this point, who who he calls Silence because he never says anything. Suddenly says, "You should get some goats." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, been working on this for weeks, and suddenly you're like, you should get some goats, right? Yeah. And uh, later he said, you know, a few paragraphs later, she writes that you know he. In later years, he thought about how he didn't lose his temper when Silence, he calls him Silence, had said this. 
and it was though it was the last satisfying bite of a ripe pear. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so it kind of has everything in this story. It's got science, it's got art, it's got goats, it's got yeah. fruit, it's got chickens. So it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm really interested in the goats of Earthsea. I talk a lot about them in the book, actually, because I think they 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 stand in some they they represent a different kind of animal counterpart to human beings um, yeah, yeah yeah i i yeah. appreciated the the extensive attention in your index to goats too. yes you, you I, recognize that the trace of it is left in the index yep yep um that's that's awesome and i totally love that story um all right so the book i chose is uh the a book about the way and the power of the way or the Tao Te Ching um by Lao Tzu that uh, Le Guin did a version of it and I really love her version. And there's one particular poem called The Uses of Not, which was incredibly important to me. So I'm just going to read that poem really quickly. And it's about negative space, I guess you could say. Um, but it's also about how art is more about creating an emptiness for the reader than it is about creating something positive. So mm. it, it's the images, the images of a pot. Hollowed out, clay makes a pot where the pot's not is where it's useful. Cut doors and windows to make a room. Where the room isn't, there's room for you. Hmm. Both the pot and the room aren't a thing. They're the space left by the walls around the thing. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. That just that just rings true to me for what Le Guin is trying to do. And I think a lot of writers try to do that. I think Willa Cather tries to do it as well. And I think th the truth is that, you know, many artists are doing that in how they try to invite the reader in. But mm -hmm. I love that Le Guin is explicit about it. Like she knows what it is that, you know, she's setting out to do. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thanks, John. And thanks to all our listeners. Thank you. Recall This Book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.